All right. Good morning, Faith Church. What's going on, everybody? Hey, it's great to have you in the house. Thanks so much for being here. My name is Steve Husky. I'm the lead pastor. But man, before we get to me, can we give Jesus one more shout of praise in this place? Come on, everybody. Come on, let's lift up our best praise. Man, what an incredible time of worship. What makes it incredible is not the talent of our team. It is the goodness of our God. Come on, he is good to us, his mercy, his grace, everything he's done for us, everything he continues to do in us. Come on, one more time. Let's give God our best. Come on. Well, listen, man, it's great to have all of our faith family here in the house. Welcome. I want to say welcome as well to our faith family up in Lawrenceburg. Can we give them some love? Thanks so much, man. We love you guys. And to all of our guests, our VIPs, thanks for being here today. It's great to have you here for the start of a brand new series. Hopefully you've gotten over or continuing to work through your offenses. And uh, amen, some of you are glad we're past that. (laughs) Well, listen, I know probably many of us in this room at one time or another have been lost, right? Lost is something that happens if you go hiking or camping. Sometimes we get lost in parking lots parking decks. I just actually heard a story uh, just this past week of a young man. It happened over in the UK, but he was on his way to a music festival in the inside of the city, and he was so excited to get there. Cars were showing up, crowds were gathering, and so as he approached uh, several miles out from where the music festival was being held, there was already so much traffic, he didn't want to get caught in it, so he just pulled over on the side of the road in a residential area, parked his car, and hiked in the last couple miles. Well, at the end of the night when the music festival was over, he had no idea where he parked. True story, it was on the news. His mom has issued a $1,000 reward to find the car. They don't, they don't know where it's at. They don't know where it's at. So, right, I mean, we, we've all been lost. Uh, my, uh, my own geographical challenges are well noted. Come on, do we have anybody else in here that's geographically challenged? I mean, give me, give me some math equations. Give me some theology to work through, but give me a map. We're in trouble. And uh, so probably a lot of us, if we've been lost, we've been lost driving. But there's a big difference between getting lost and being lost, right? When when you're lost, you know right away when you're lost, but you don't recognize when you're getting lost, right? If If you're driving, it's not like all of a sudden you realize I'm lost here, but I wasn't lost two houses ago. So getting lost is something that really we're unaware of, but you immediately recognize when you're lost. In the 16th century, the church had lost its way. And uh, when I say it lost its way, ultimately the message and the mission of the church was lost through tradition. Tradition took a higher priority over mission. And so there are two things that happen in this time frame. And so just a little bit, I know a lot of people don't like history, but I promise we're going to get somewhere today that will help all of us to incredible elements collided in the early 16th century that caused this moment to step into the forefront of history and humanity and the church. The two things that happened early in this time period, first was the church had begun to basically teach that forgiveness, God's forgiveness, is something that could be earned or purchased. I know, crazy, right? So, There was a man who was commissioned by the Pope at that time. This guy, Tetzel, he was, imagine a, uh, he was commissioned to raise money to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And uh, he was a, he was a master marketer. Fifth Street 
in New York, right? Fifth Avenue, he was a guy that knew how to market, and uh, he had to raise money. He didn't do it by selling Zaxby cards, candles, and candy bars. He did it by selling something called indulgences, which indulgences was a teaching of the Catholic Church, again, basically, in its essence, that you could somehow purchase or earn God's forgiveness, and so, I mean, imagine, I'll be honest, if, uh, if I didn't know where forgiveness came from, it's, it's pretty smart marketing. Imagine telling somebody, you can go live how you want, do what you want, drop some money in the plate, and you can buy your way out of hell. I, 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 there's some times I would have dropped some money in the plate. Come on, somebody. And so, on one side, you have the church losing its way theologically. Again, the mission compromised by tradition. On the other side, the other element of history that collided early in the 16th century is that there was a group of men who were well aware of this teaching of the church that had lost its way, and they began to publicly challenge the leaders of the church. At the forefront of this group of men was somebody, maybe you recognize his name if you've been around church circles for a little while. He was Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King or Martin Luther King Jr. We, we respect those men in history, are thankful for them for the part they've played in, in our history and in our nation. I'm talking about the OG, Martin Luther, the original. Martin Luther, all the way back, he was a man who had a pretty radical experience. He had this moment in time that he was afraid for his life, and like a lot of you did, he made a deal with God. You know how it is, God, if you get me out of this test, if you get me out of this mess, if you get me out of this struggle, I'll serve you forever. And then we forget the promise 30 seconds later. This guy took the original OG Martin Luther. He took his commitment and promise to God seriously. At that time, he was a law student. He dropped out of law school, and he joined a monastery to become a monk. And during his time in monastery, he was so racked with guilt from his own sin, like he knew he was... He knew he'd made mistakes. He knew he missed the mark. And he, there's, he, he, there wasn't a solution for the agony of his own soul. Like, how do I, how do I forget forgiven? And so he was doing all of the things that he had been taught to do. This guy fasted for weeks on end until he was so anemic that he could barely stand. He would go to confessional, and the priest would be upset with him because he would be there for hours confessing every little thing, trying to find some some solace for his soul. He would pray for hours and hours and hours just seeking like some remedy, some, some answer. And ultimately, Martin Luther, he found the solution to his soul when he found a Bible. Bibles weren't common like they are today. A lot of us, we have two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten Bibles. It's my, never mind. Sesame Street, is that still on TV? That's it. That's my best impression of the count, by the way. That's all I got. And so he, uh, we don't have Bible. They didn't have Bibles then like we do now. It was a rare thing. Only certain people in position at church could have a Bible. And so Martin Luther got his hands on a copy of God's Word, and he found the remedy. He found the solution, ultimately, that if you're taking notes, this is where we're going to go for just a few minutes today. He found this, that forgiveness is a gift that was purchased by Christ and could never be earned by man. Come on, somebody. Is anybody here thankful that Jesus purchased 
our salvation. Like he came into this realization, everything that he had learned, everything that he experienced in the monastery, everything up to that point that the church was teaching him, like he was doing it all and he couldn't find any kind of release or forgiveness because all of a sudden, once he opened the pages of scripture, he realized again that it was something that Jesus has already purchased, not something that man or people can ever earn for ourselves. Man, in the pages of scripture, he realized This radical, life-changing truth. And so October 31st, 1517, I'm talking 502 years ago this month, 500 years ago, this man, Martin Luther, he walked up to the door of the church and he did something that has been infamous in history. He nailed what's known as his 95 theses to the door of the church, 95 statements of challenging the leadership of the local church. 95 statements of saying what you're teaching goes contrary to what I'm reading. And in that sparked what has become known as the great Protestant Reformation. Protestant Reformation. To that time, if you were a Christian, you were a Catholic. Not necessarily Catholics as we know them today, uh, but everybody was Catholic. Catholic is a word universal. There wasn't denominate. There weren't Baptists and you know, Presbyterians and Wesleyans and Pentecostals, there, was, there, were, there were Christians. And we were part of the universal church. We were all Catholics. We were all part of one church. But in the Protestant Reformation, where the word Protestant comes from, is because this group of men were protesting what the church was teaching. Based on, again, what Martin Luther, who was the spearhead of the Reformation, he said, hey, something's amiss, something's wrong. And so he started with this declaration And ultimately, out of this reformation became five primary statements that the reformers were making. And they were all found in this word where we get our series today, sola. Everybody say sola. Sola was a Latin word for alone. And here were ultimately the five statements that the reformers made that we stand on today. And as we step into this brand new series over the month of October, we want to tune up your faith. We want to remind you of the significance of our Savior. We want to give you a firm foundation to put your faith in, in one person, in one thing alone. And it's these five right here. Here's what the Reformers ultimately taught in that season that we stand on today. It was these right here. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Sola Christus, and Sola De Gloria. We are saved by Scripture alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone, or by grace alone, by Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. Come on, everybody say alone. Alone. That's it. And so, man, they began, and they sparked this reformation, and the message has spread all around the world and the globe that we understand, again, that something it's not something that we can purchase. It's not something we can add to. It is, again, by Scripture alone. By grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, that we find forgiveness in Christ. Come on, is anybody here thankful for what we find in Jesus? So today, as we step into week one in this series, Sola Food, you like to play on words? Sola Food. I want to talk about this first declaration, this first revelation that this man, Martin Luther, had. Ultimately, he realized that If we were going to grow, if we were going to learn, if we were going to have a connection with our creator, it had to come through sola scriptura. It had to come through scripture alone. 
through Scripture alone. Scripture alone was ultimately a declaration of this, that Scripture trumps tradition. Scripture trumps tradition. At that time, there were papal decrees going out. The Pope was making decrees. Church councils were coming up with creeds. Pastors were preaching messages. And there were all of these theological statements being made. And ultimately, what the reformers said was, all of those things are good and they're well-intentioned and they might have value. But at the end of the day, all of those things from what the Pope said, what preachers say, what priests say, what church councils say, they're all subject. They are all subordinate to God's word. Come on, somebody. God's word trumps tradition. Now, what's crazy is uh, that battle of scripture versus tradition, 1500s was not the first time it happened. Did you know that Jesus had the same battle of scripture and tradition? In fact, Mark chapter 7, we want to read just a section of scripture. Some of you who've been around the block for a little while, you've been in churches, some in your life, probably many of you in, in this room, you have maybe unknowingly had the battle of scripture and tradition where people came and tried to tell you certain things about how you should live, how you should function, what you should believe. And it's because they believed it because someone who they know taught them to believe it. And, on, and all of a sudden you came to church and you're like, wait a minute. I've been told my whole life, do you know how many people have stepped on the campus of Faith Church and they've called me and they've said, I have believed my whole life this. And you opened the word and I saw this and I've never seen it before. Scripture always trumps tradition. Come on, somebody. So Mark chapter 7, here is the conversation that Jesus has with a group of the religious of that day facing the same challenge of somehow tradition of private teaching had found its way to elevate itself over God's word and Jesus steps in to challenge it like he always does mark chapter 7 verse 1 through 8 says this one day some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus and they noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating the Jews especially the Pharisees do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Sounds like they knew my mom or your mom. Come on, somebody, right? You don't eat until you go, go wash your hands. Anybody remember as kids, you go wash your hands and like you stopped at the wrist and they were like, just water had run down and washed some dirt off your forearms? Some of you didn't go outside and play. Shame on you. So this was their deal, like before you eat, you wash your hands. Nothing wrong with it. I think it's a good idea. Probably will keep you from getting sick. But what they believed was that if you did not wash your hands before you ate, you were ceremonially unclean, not physically unclean, which means God rejected you. You couldn't access God's presence as a person unless you washed your hands before you ate. And so Jesus, their disciples, the dirty dozen, they're sitting down to eat some KFC the Pharisees watch them start eating before they wash their hands like, whoa, pump the brakes, Jesus. What's wrong with your disciples? They're not washing their hands before they eat. And everybody knows it's been taught. It's an ancient ritual. Everybody knows you wash your hands before you eat. And if you don't, God rejects you. Come on. Verse 4, similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions. Everybody shout Traditions that they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law ask him, 
Why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. I wonder what the ceremony, like, I wonder if they had, like, some steps to it. You know, ceremony, I, you know, was it a pump? Was it a lather? I don't, we don't know. Come on, y'all got to help me here. <laughs> Why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They, their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law, and you substitute your own tradition. They had gotten it upside down and backward. They had put tradition over Scripture. Jesus came to set it right and put them in check and said, Scripture always is the highest and greatest authority. He came to put a stop to some of that foolishness and challenge, again, what was happening. Not that there's anything wrong with traditions. Think about it. A lot of us in this room, we have our own traditions, things that we do, maybe things we do around the holidays. For me, one of my traditions, especially for Thanksgiving and Easter probably, uh, uh, and, and uh, Christmas, probably only those three times of the year, uh, you know, there's always a big meal served. And uh, I just can't eat my meal unless I get my cranberry sauce. Come on. I'm not talking about the, the kind with the cranberries in it. I'm talking about the kind that's jelly, that when you take it out of the can, it still looks like the can. Come on, somebody. And I talk it down to everybody. Ooh, you don't want to eat that. Ugh. We have 30 people in our house, and we got one can, and I want it all. So I'm like, ugh, don't get none of that. Ugh. And I'm telling you, listen. We'll have friends and family members and gifts to open and all kinds of good food to eat. And if I don't have some cranberry sauce, everybody can go home and I'm going to my room to pout. Shauna's like, I got $500 in groceries and I forgot your 99-cent can of cranberry sauce. I'm like, we're done. It's over. Cranberry, that's my tradition. I have to have my cranberry sauce if I'm going to enjoy my dinner so I can enjoy my family so I can celebrate my Savior on Christmas. It's all connected. Tradition. Tradition. We have traditions in church. And if we're honest, and maybe some of these will offend you, if so, go back and listen to the previous series. But we have these traditions in church, and somehow tradition has trumped Scripture. We have traditions that, come on, everybody knows you go to church. Like, y'all are sinners right here. You don't know it. Everybody knows Jesus don't come to church till the 1030 service. Because for years and years and years, everybody met at 1030. Honestly, when churches first started going multi-service in the 80s, do you know there were pastors that preached against churches and pastors who wanted to add to? You can't, you can't do a 9 and 11. Everybody knows Jesus only shows up at 1030. Tradition. Do you know we still have people who call this church we're the fastest growing church in the region. We've grown from 400 to almost 3,000. There are still people that will call this church and say, yeah, can you tell us when is your Sunday school hour? Uh, we don't have a Sunday school hour. <gasps> well, my God. And you call yourself a church. I just want you to know Jesus didn't go to Sunday school. The disciples, nothing wrong with Sunday school, but Sunday school is not scripture. Sunday, we, we program the church to make the message matter, but we change the methods when necessary. We got rid of Sunday, Wednesday night service. People are like, oh, you kicked Jesus out of the church. You know, you know they ain't, they've not always done Wednesday night services. Oh, I got one more as long as I'm stirring you up. 
hats in church. Oh, there it is. I knew if I dug around long enough, I'd hit a nerve. Hats in church. There's nothing wrong with the politeness of not wearing a hat anytime you're inside of a building. If you, were, if you came up in military, everybody knows in the military, you remove your cover when you go indoors. You were possibly raised in a home where possibly your parents told you, take your hat off when you go indoors. I'm not telling you it's not a good idea. I'm not telling you it's not even necessarily polite. But what I want you to know is it's tradition. And God would much rather see a young man who doesn't know Christ walk through those doors with the hat. Come on. Oh, I'm not done yet. Wait. Oh, just wait. And he has no problem with a worship leader standing on this platform wearing a hat. Because what Jesus was teaching was it's not that what goes into your heart, it's what comes out of your heart that matters. It's not what's on your head, it's what's in your heart that matters. But what's crazy is we see churches that don't do Sunday school, that don't have Wednesday night service. We have a hard time with hats on the platform, and we get all rough, we get our feathers ruffled. And Jesus is looking and she's saying, but where is that written? You're putting your tradition over Scripture, and you've got it upside down and backward. Sola Scriptura. Scripture always trumps tradition. Always. And so Jesus steps in and he challenges the religious leaders that were telling basically his disciples, disciples, you're going to hell because you didn't wash your hands before you eat. Jesus is basically saying, that's what your forefathers taught, but that's not what the father taught. It's nowhere in scripture where is it written. So if you're taking notes, here's where we're going to go, is God's revelation is always greater than man's tradition. God's revelation is always greater than man's tradition. When we talk about God's revelation, I mean ultimately the Bible. The Bible is this. The Bible is God's revelation of who he is, who we are, and his plan for redemption. That's what the Bible is. The Bible, the Holy Bible, God's word, is a revelation. It's a picture of who God is, who we are, and his plan for redemption. It's a picture of divinity, of humanity, and how those two connect. You want to know what God is like? You want to know his character? Do you want to know his essence? You find it in the pages in the revelation of Scripture. Do you want to know who you are? Not who your mama thinks you are, not who your buddies think you are, not who you think you are. If you want to know who you really are, you peel back the pages of Scripture. You want to know how to connect with your creator? You open the Bible, the revelation. Ultimately, just a quick flyby of the 30,000-foot view for maybe for some of you who are new to church or some of you who've been in church your whole life, but you don't even really know what the Bible is. The Bible is not a book. The Bible is 66 books from cover to cover, 66 books. 39 books are in the Old Testament, written by 46 different authors over 1,400 years, written by shepherds and kings and political leaders. Those 39 books cover God's law, history, some poetry, and prophets. Ultimately, the Old Testament is a picture of God's dealing with the nation of Israel. God births humanity all the way in the beginning in Genesis. Very soon we see the birth, the beginning of the nation of Israel. And the entire Old Testament, the history of it, the prophets speaking to it, is God dealing with the nation of Israel. And you continually see this cycle. Faith, forgetting, falling away, forgiveness. Faith, 
forgetting, falling away forgiveness. The nation of Israel has faith in God. They honor God's word. They honor God's commandment. They serve God. And then they get around some other people that lead them astray and they forget God. So they fall away from God. And then God in his grace and his mercy that's new every day. Come on, is anybody thankful for it? He forgives them and restores them. And so the entire Old Testament is following the nation of Israel as they go through this process over and over and over. But what you find is not just the dealing with the nation of Israel from God's perspective, but what you find is continually peppered throughout the pages of the Old Testament is a promised Messiah. How do you fix what's broken in humanity? How do we fix what's broken in the world? How do we fix what's broken between us and our creator? God continually promises a redeemer, a savior, a messiah. And you step into the next portion of scripture, the New Testament. The New Testament is 27 books written by just a handful of people over a period of 100 years. And it opens with our favorite character, Jesus. The first four books are biographies. Anybody here like a good documentary? It's like the documentary of the life of Jesus. Inside of the New Testament is... Again, the biographies of Jesus, a short history book, the book of Acts, and the rest is pr primarily epistles, letters written from primarily the Apostle Paul to individuals and groups of people on this life and this faith and what it means to serve God. But throughout it all, Old Testament and New Testament, God dealing with the nation of Israel, God dealing with the church, all of it from beginning to be beginning, or beginning to end has this red thread of redemption. That all the way through it, we see God continuing to reach out to us, God trying to connect with us, God calling us, God pursuing us. Listen, we're never pursuing God. We, we, have, this, we have this phrase in church, and again, it's tradition. It's like, hey, hey, w when did you find God? Listen, I didn't find God. God found me. I, I didn't go to God. God came to me. Come on, I couldn't reach heaven, but he reached earth by sending his son Jesus from heaven to come and to rescue all of humanity. Sola Scriptura. Jesus is the revelation found in Scripture from page to page. And we find the beginning Genesis where paradise is lost. To the last page of the Bible, the book of Revelation, not Revelations. Let's just say it together, Revelation. Come on, and next time somebody says Revelations, smack them and say it together with them, Revelation. <laughs> don't smack them, and if you do, don't tell them I told you to do it, because I'll lie, and I'll say I didn't say that. All the way at the end, we read paradise because of Christ. Well, one day, ultimately, and finally, forever be restored. Come on, somebody. So... Martin Luther got his hands on a copy of this book and he began to peel back the pages of scripture and he began to realize that what he was hearing from the church leaders at that time was contrary to the message that he found in the pages that he was reading and he stood up in protest. He denounced the message that was coming at that time from the church and again, the Reformation started. Sola Scriptura. Tradition's good, but it's always subject to Scripture. It's always second to Scripture. It's always beneath the authority of God's Word. And this guy had a radical, radical, radical salvation. Martin Luther, he said this. This is a powerful quote early on in his own spiritual journey when he got his hands on a copy of God's Word. I love this quote. He said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet that run after me. It has hands 
it lays a hold of me. Now, I know some of you, if I could talk to you, this might be your testimony as well. Do you know this isn't just Martin Luther's testimony of the Bible? It's the Bible's testimony of itself. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says this, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Come on, some of you here who've read the Bible, you know that's true. You know what what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword? It cuts between, it divides between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It means it it cuts through the BS. Oh, I said that. Write it down. All the excuses we come up with, all the things we say. No, no, I'm telling you, you start opening the page of Scripture, and all of a sudden it'll reveal to you that you're a person of pride, that you got greed in your life, that you got a bad attitude. It'll start to reveal some innermost stuff in you. Come on. It'll reveal God's got good plans for you. It'll start, it'll start exposing your heart. It'll, it'll, come on, it'll expose what your mama don't see in you, what your friends don't see in you, what you thought nobody else knew. God's Word, it comes alive and it speaks to you. I remember when I first got saved and I got a Bible. I didn't grow up with a Bible. I didn't grow up in church. I didn't grow up reading a Bible. So anybody who says you can't read the Bible because you don't understand it, I promise you, you probably never really tried. Because I got a Bible for the first time and I started reading it. And I'm telling you, it came alive. God spoke to me. God challenged me. God encouraged me. God rebuked me. God lifted me up. And sometimes God cut me down. But it was constantly God's voice speaking to me out of the pages and the revelation of Scripture. Come on, somebody. That's how I knew I was called into ministry. You know, early on, I would read the pages of Scripture, and I would see about God's goodness and God's grace and God's love, that Jesus was a healer and a redeemer and a restorer, and I would always get this passion, this burning feeling in my heart, like somebody, somebody needs to tell people about this. I'm telling you, I would read it for the first time. I think, do people know this? Because if they know it, nobody told me. Somebody needs to tell people this. Somebody needs to tell people that there's hope found in Christ, that there's forgiveness found in a Savior. And Jesus said, I have just a person. I know just who I'll use to tell them. I'm telling you, it just, it comes alive. I heard a great, really powerful story just recently. Uh, A friend of mine, he is over a ministry and mission called Fire Bible. Basically, Fire Bible is they take God's Word, the Bible, they translate it in multiple languages all over the world, and they supplement Scripture with study material with a charismatic Pentecostal lean, and they distribute it to help new believers not just have a copy of God's Word, but to have some study resources to help them in their spiritual journey. And uh, so he just heard a story that pretty much inspired him to help him stay on track with the mission he has. And the story was this. He met a man over in the Middle East who had several years ago gotten a copy of a New Testament fire Bible. Had never had a Bible, had never read the Bible. And so he was excited to have a Bible, not because it was a Bible, but because he was poor. And he used the pages of Scripture to roll his cigarettes every day. Come on, some of you did it too. And every morning he would wake up and he would remove one page of the New Testament. And he would read it. And after he read it, he would divide it into four pieces and he'd roll himself four cigarettes for the day. And his testimony was this. I smoked my way through the Gospels and I got saved in John chapter 4. 
Come on, somebody. Every day, just reading the pages of Scripture. Come on, what a powerful time. I smoked my way through the gospel. I'm going to put that. Everybody's like, what should you put on our church sign? I'm putting that on our church sign. Come to faith. We, never mind. I know too much, too much, too far. But I love it because, again, this is, this is the testimony of Martin Luther that it wasn't the tradition of the church. It was the revelation of Scripture that he found out who he really was and he found out who God really was and how to connect. And again, God's word is still alive for every person in this room and a lot of us are living by tradition instead of by a personal revelation of how God has shown himself and who he is through scripture. We have chosen what culture says over what Christ says. We have chosen tradition over scripture, we have chosen personal beliefs over the Bible. Several years ago, my grandfather, my mom's dad was sick. It was pretty clear he was going to pass away and uh, I knew he didn't know the Lord. And man, just had this heavy burden to try to go speak to him and I just, let me just tell you this. Uh, and you just write it down. I'm here to help anybody how I can help anybody in this room at any time. But, do you know one of, the, one of the phone calls I get the most? Pastor, will you come talk to my blank about Jesus? Will you come talk to my dad? Will you come talk to my brother? Will you come talk to my kid? And do you know what I tell most people? Contrary to what I just said, I'll help you anyway, anytime. No. You know why? You tell them. Do you know why? Because your testimony of what God's done in your life that they've seen in front of their eyes is far more powerful than an outsider coming in that they don't know. And my grandfather got to see my life change in front of him because I gave my life to Christ and he transformed me. And so I'll, I'll never forget sitting at the dining room table with my grandfather who was at that time, unbeknownst, we knew he was sick, but just about a month away from passing. And this guy was such a good guy, man. I mean, I, he was one of those guys, really my hero. He was in the cavalry in World War II. Can you imagine everybody else gets tanks and he gets a horse? I mean, that's not fair. In the cavalry in World War II, my mom's mom died after having four kids in her early 20s of cervical cancer. At that time, men got rid of their kids. He kept his kids, remarried, had four more kids. Hard worker his entire life, well-known, upstanding citizen in his community. And so here he is, he's a good man, and I'm trying to tell him that he needs a savior. And all he would tell me for the first several visits and conversations about that he was getting ready to step into eternity, and I wanted to make sure that he was ready, is he would say, Stephen, I'm a good man, and I'm ready to stand before God. I'm a good man. I'm a good man. I'm a good person. You're telling me that I've served my country, I've loved my family, i worked my, hard my whole life, you're telling me that God's going to reject me? See, because he had the tradition of what people said. God's revelation is a revelation of who he is and who we are and his plan of redemption. And when you read the pages of scripture, you find out that we're not as good as we say we are. That our heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. That we are broken. And while I might be better than you or you might be better than me, we are all fall well below the gap between the goodness of our God. And there's nothing we can do to reach him. But th thankfully, the revelation of scripture is not just how broken we are, but how whole he is not just how bad we are how good he is and finally in the last several days before my father went into the hospital and passed away about a week after being there 
I got the privilege to lead my grandfather to Christ because he forsook his tradition of what people have been telling him his whole life, that you're a good, good person and good people go to heaven. And he realized it's not about how good we are, it's about how good God is. And he put his trust in Jesus because he heard what Scripture said over what tradition said. Sola Scriptura. If your traditions say contrary to what God's Word says, you've got to exchange them. And you'll never exchange them until you find out what God's Word says. Martin Luther's entire life was changed when he got his hands on a Bible. What would happen if you got your hands on one? Somebody say, I already have one. Are you reading it? You'll never know what God says unless you lean in and listen. 2 Timothy chapter 3 2 Timothy chapter 3 says this as we get ready to close. All Scripture, everybody say all Scripture, is inspired by God. And it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Sola Scriptura, by Scripture alone. I want to invite us as we close today, week one of Sola Food. And you see back in front of you, there's a card that looks like this. I want everybody to grab one. And it's just a, a reading plan that's going to take us through the next several days to the end of the, end of the month of October. Here, here's the challenge I want to make to you. I want to challenge everybody in this room, everybody in Lawrenceburg, everybody watching online. I want to encourage you every day, every day through the end of the month. I'd encourage you every day for the rest of your life, but let's just start out small. Every day for the rest of this month, I want to encourage you to read a little bit of Scripture. And I think if you'll give it a chance, I'm not saying you won't read terms that you may not have to look up. I'm not saying there's some things you won't bump into that... You don't have immediately the answer for it, but I think you'll find overall, especially as you read about the life of Jesus and the Gospel of Luke, that God will speak to you. God will challenge you. God will teach you. Now, I, I hear you. Listen, I can hear your minds churning. Pastor, I don't have any time. I'm so busy. Did you all know in the last iPhone update, iPad, I know a lot of your Apple users, did you know they have this thing called screen time? You can look and see how much time you're spending on your phone. Here's my first challenge to you. I triple dog dare you. I don't, I'm not even starting with a double dog. I'm going all the way in for the triple dog. I triple dog dare you to open your phone, check your screen time, and you're probably going to find between Netflix, social media, and games, you waste a whole, 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 whole lot of time. Find the time you spent the most on your phone in something that you don't really have to do and spend at least that amount of time in God's Word. I triple dog dare you. But I at least challenge everybody in this room to grab one of these cards, take it home with you, stick it in your Bible, tape it to your iPad, whatever you use. And starting tomorrow, every day for the month of October, let's get in God's Word. Let's open up our hearts. Let Him speak to you, change you, challenge you, grow you, refine you, renew you. Come on, is anybody here in for some of that? How many people in this room, as we close today, would be honest enough to say that maybe they do need to open their heart up to God's word a little more than they currently do? I want to invite us. Come on, let's stand all over this room. We're going to pray together.
Father, I thank you, God, for the power of your word. It is life-changing. Every week we get the privilege to preach it, and every day I have the privilege to read it. Lord, it's so easy for us to push it aside in the busyness of life, for everything else to rush in and fill the void and consume our time. And God, we end up believing what culture says instead of hearing what Christ says. And so, Lord, I pray over the rest of this month that every one of us in this room, every one of us in Lawrenceburg would make a commitment to make room in our life to hear your word. Sola Scriptura. We're going to build our faith on Scripture alone. And so, Father, help us. And when we open the pages, speak to us. In Jesus' name, and everybody who agreed said amen. Amen. God bless you guys, man. Have a great week. We'll see you next week for week two of Sola Food.